If not, be turned to the book of Matthew. We're doing things a little bit different this evening. The book of Matthew, chapter 1. book of Matthew, chapter 1. It's typically customary when we have the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, or communion as we call it, look at a passage of scripture that has something uh, to let us know what we commemorate here. And sometimes we, we would think that perhaps Christmas story is in one category and then the Easter story is in another category. Uh, and you wouldn't think, of course, as the Christmas stories having anything mentioned in there that would tie into what we commemorate this evening because it's a whole different time of the year that we commemorate Easter and all that. It does tie in because you cannot separate the two. You cannot separate the cradle and the cross. It's all one story of God's providing salvation for lost humanity. And in this passage, we do have a reminder of what we celebrate when we observe the Lord's Supper. Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. Would you stand as the scriptures read, please? Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while they thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She shall bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son. They will call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife not know her till she had been brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you that the story is seamless from, from start to finish of your plan of salvation. We always ask that you'd keep us mindful of this plan, that salvation, though free to us, was definitely not cheap. We thank you that this plan, Father, you had this plan throughout the ages. And the Bible from cover to cover tells us of this wonderful news of your love for us. And help us, Father, to celebrate that love in the Christmas season and every day and to share that love with others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. As we look this morning, if you tie this morning's passage of Scripture in the book of Luke and this passage of Scripture, the Christmas story involves the selection of two men. Two men who would be assigned the responsibility of providing a safe and a reliable and a godly home for the sons entrusted in their care, Zacharias and Joseph. We see a pattern emerge. What kind of man does God choose to do an important job? First thing we notice, it's the first thing that was mentioned about Zacharias, he wants a man that's devoted to biblical principles. See, Joseph had a, a conflict. He had a conflict going on in his mind 
had a conflict of what he was going to do, is presented with a situation that he didn't ask for and definitely did not want. You see, the outward appearances, the visible evidence, portray that Mary had been unfaithful to him. And you have to understand where they were in their relationship. The, the marriage customs of that day nowhere like we have in America. Some of you guys, especially you kids, are going to think that's on another planet. First of all, the parents of the couple, and sometimes even a matchmaker, that would be the computer-free uh, version of a dating website, I suppose. There would be a matchmaker in the town. And the matchmaker would look at the different families and the different kids and the parents and everything, and they'd work with the matchmaker and so forth. And I'm not sure where they got their credentials and so forth. And then they would plan which children would marry which children. Now, kids, I want you to imagine what kind of husband would your parents choose for you? What kind of wife would your parents choose for you? You see, the kids had nothing to do with it because according to Jewish custom, you can't make that kind of decision just based on willy-nilly emotional feelings. So they would carefully analyze it, and the parents would arrange for these kids, and sometimes they were, they were not even teens yet, and they would arrange for these kids to marry. Now, Fast forward into their young teens or middle teens. Sometimes it's as early as 14, 15, 16 for the girls. They would have a betrothal. That is when this agreement would become binding. Now, I'm told as I read through some uh, scholars concerning Jewish customs, this would not go through if the girl was not willing. Now, I don't know about the guy, but if she did not want to go through with this, then they, it would all be called off. If she did, then they would be betrothed. Now, I think that word betrothed is used in the King James Version. What this meant is now they were officially engaged and betrothed. This was as binding as a marriage contract. That's why you have in here wife, husband, betrothed, uh, and those kind of things, even though they had not been married. And this is something that's significant. After the betrothal, between the betrothal and the marriage, the couple had very little contact with each other. They, they didn't date. They didn't be together a whole lot. He was busy building a place for them to be able to go. So we understand this is altogether different. So we may look at this saying, I don't understand this. We're talking about uh, his, his wife and, and her husband and so forth. They're not even married. They were bound legally to be married. Now, in the midst of all this, the outward appearances portrayed that Mary had been unfaithful. Now, he had not gotten the news that Mary had. All he knew is what he could see and what the town saw. And that is, she's expecting a child. Now, to continue with this marriage would imply two things. It would communicate, first of all, that maybe he was the participating partner. He could not afford for that to be uh, imagined even. So he could not afford for his reputation to be totally devastated by appearing that he and Mary 
had had more or less breached biblical principles and now she was they were expecting they were expecting a child and they had not gotten legally married yet he he could not afford for his reputation he could not afford for it to be communicated that he would condone that kind of thing number 2 it cannot be he could not afford that he condoned that behavior if somebody else was involved you see his initial response communicated his biblical values that he was not going to condone anything that violated God's principles of relationships and marriage. So, he was trying to come up with a plan. So, he had biblical principles. But, here's where the conflict came in. He was a man with a compassionate heart of mercy. You see, if all he had was biblical principles... Oh, he could have dragged her out into the public square and had some sort of divorce proceedings up in a public uh, arrangement there and, and some sort of public meeting. He could have totally disgraced her because he had his reputation to protect. And he was going to protect, and, and she, of course, had betrayed him, so she's going to pay. He could have made a public spectacle out of it, but he didn't. You see, in the eyes of the community, he had been embarrassed. In the eyes of the community, he had been shamed. But isn't this something? He was more concerned about her shame. And the option that he had was he could very quietly do what he needed to do and not make a public spectacle out of it. And you see... That's always the best way to go. You can stand for what's right without shaming and embarrassing, and he did that. And you see, when it comes to a man that God wants to entrust with a very important job, he needs a man with biblical values. But he also needs a man with a compassionate heart of mercy. We saw that with Zacharias, didn't we? And we saw, see that now with Joseph, a mixture of the two. And here's the third thing. God needed a man who would faithfully accept God's ultimate plan. Have to look close, real close. In verse 21, he's told them about the fact that this child is conceived by the Holy Spirit. There was no wrongdoing of any kind. There's a miracle involved. And it says this, she'll bring forth a son, and you'll call his name Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. Now, we read this. We can rejoice in that. We can rejoice in that. This is the Savior of the world. When Joseph heard this, something else was involved. Joseph was very familiar with the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament. How do we know this? He followed everything according to the regulations of the scripture. Remember, eight days after Jesus was born, they were taking care of spiritual things. In the 40 days after Jesus was born, they can take taking care of spiritual things. When Jesus was 12, where do we find them? We find them where they should be in the temple, taking care of spiritual things. He knew his Bible. He knew his Bible. 
and he knew the cost of sin. And he knew the price for sin. And he knew the remedy for sin. In Exodus chapter 30, verse 10. Yes, the Hebrew people had a promise. They had a promise in the 130th Psalm, 7 and 8, that God would send a Savior and he will save his people from their sins. But they also knew for centuries this is what took place. Verse 10 of Exodus chapter 30, And Aaron shall make an atonement upon its horns, once a year with the blood of the sin offering of atonement. Once a year he shall make atonement upon it throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. You know what atonement means? It means the reparation for sin. It means paying the price for sin. It means evening the, the account balance for sin. Zeroing out the ledger. There was a price for sin. And the price for sin was a sacrifice, a sacrifice of blood. In fact, in Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. So when we read this, he shall save his people from their sin, we know what that involves and we rejoice in it, but this was his daddy that received this news. He'll save his people from their sins. And he knew what this would involve. And he accepted God's ultimate plan. What a man Joseph was. He, we never have a single word that he said recorded in the scripture. We only hear from him two or three different times and every time he's taking care of his family. He's taking them down to Egypt. He's taking them back He's protecting them. He's taking them to the temple. He's taking them where they need to be. And the angel told him from the very start, this is the one that will save his people from their sins. And he knew what that price would involve. Paul would say it this way in the book of Hebrews, chapter 9, verse 22, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. So we read through the Christmas story and we read about the birth of Jesus and right here in the middle of that story is a very small reference that speaks volumes. He'll save his people from their sins. When you do your homework, you realize that involves the blood and the body of Jesus Christ. So it is appropriate that somewhere in the Christmas season we would celebrate that ultimate price that Jesus paid. We will commemorate it and we will acknowledge it and let's be thankful for it because there is no greater gift than what Jesus gave to us. Is there anything before we proceed with the Lord's Supper?